it goes back to the whole idea of, of again, being, being a student, not a follower, but you can almost take that another step and say, if you are responsible for being a leader, my God, whatever you do, don't ever stop learning. Don't ever stop being a student. Um, in other words, to be a leader, be a student. That's where we left off with Ed Toniak in part one of this interview. Now, please enjoy the second half. Yeah, there's kind of a maybe an implicit um, amount of humility in that, where maybe people are viewed uh, more generally as leaders as being um, incredibly confident and competent, and I'm sure most are, but um, maybe those ones that are <laughs> are still still around to lead have to have some degree. It sounds like of of um, humility or recognition that you know the learning's not done, and uh, and and as you were saying with with um, you know, decisions being made from every possible uh, voice being heard. Yeah, that sounds like uh, maybe a, a underrepresented quality. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's gotten a lot better um, than it used to be. I think I think American business, you know, used to be so almost militaristic in terms of its organizing principles, but moreover, its organizing mentality. Um, and so if I'm the commander in chief of this business, I need to demonstrate that, you know, I know it all and that, you know, I'm going to make the decision and my decision is gospel and your job right. is to do it. Even right. the military doesn't operate that way anymore. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. almost all of the. The scholarship that's come out of all the war colleges over the last 34 years is that kind of approach to organizational mentality is a prescription for disaster. Right? Yeah. It goes back to this whole diagonal idea. To what degree are you capturing learning at the front line of either the military or business and making sure that all that intelligence at the front line makes it all the way to, you know, the, the CEO suite. So the CEO suite knows what's actually going on. And yeah. it's humble enough to recognize that they're not sitting where the business happens. Right. There's some, uh, there's some analogy to be made there for, uh, for Congress or politics in that same way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I thought we could jump on to a little bit of uh more specifics, maybe this is pertinent to your job now with Vici, um, but I think, is that how you say it, Vici? Yes. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, in this past year of this pandemic, I've I've really noticed how bad my intuition is for statistics and risk. And um, as people, you know, spit out various, um, various protocols with COVID, and as we learned more, it just seemed to reiterate how bad humans um, you know, general understanding for, for risk is. And I'm sure that's something that you guys have to constantly be monitoring and looking at downside and whether an investment or a property is worth taking on. Um, how do you generally, you know, personally and professionally look at risk, whether that's buying an asset or um, taking on a new job, whatever that is, do you have a philosophy around risk or risk management? 
Yeah, um, and and it probably starts with um, my fundamental belief that you can never eliminate risk, right? Yeah. Um, and I would say that one of the more interesting and perhaps dangerous developments of the last 10, 20 years is the almost worshipful discipline. Uh, no, let me put this another way. The way in which the whole field of analytics has almost become relative and that the belief in analytics has gotten to the point where some at least tend to believe that if I analyze this enough, I can eliminate uncertainty, I can elim eliminate risk. But you know what? You can, right? Yeah. Um, and and I think the whole field of analytics is giving so much false confidence where it is not warranted, but in many cases too, is leading to risk aversion that at the end of the day costs way too much in terms of lost opportunity. Mm. And, you know, I think one of the things that was that the country and the world, but maybe especially the U.S. and especially the U.S. media had a tough time with during the whole COVID crisis is the idea that somewhere there was a magic solution that was going to eliminate all risk. Yeah. And somewhere there was a compromise free uh, solution to all of this. Um, in which no risks are run, nobody gets sick, nobody dies, right? Well, you know what? Yep. Never was never going to happen. Um, and therefore, you really need to, to take, you need to look at risk as holistically as you can, right? Mm. And that if, if, if you have a set of objectives that you wish to achieve, whether it be minimizing deaths, minimizing cases, minimizing disruption to the economy, what are the various actions available to you? And what are the benefits and the costs of each action? And at the end of the day, being willing to be the kind of decision maker and leader who accepts the fact that I'm going to run risks with this decision I'm making, and I'm going to proceed on the basis that the rewards of the decision I'm making, the benefits of the decision I'm making, outweigh the risks or the costs. And I sure hope I'm right. And I'm going to observe every step of the way. And if it starts to become clear, I've made the wrong decision, we're going to change and we're going to change fast. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Sweden's a good case study there for uh, making bold decisions and then, uh, yeah, trying to reevaluate. Yeah, and that, that probably plays into various sunk costs where you have to realize at what point are you yeah. going to jump ship and which time are you going to double down on your own uh, own choices, which, yeah, ties into a lot of things. I thought something interesting on that last point is the risk of doing too much research research on risk and missed opportunity. Like, at what point are you risking potential upside by doing research on how much risk you're possibly <laughs> putting on the line. Yeah, there's something ironic to that. <laughs> yeah, no, there is. There is. Um, and it's 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 one of the toughest decisions, you know, to be made in business. Um, you know, I, I, I think that and I'm sure there are case studies that have been written, I confess I haven't read them, um, 
on BlackBerry, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, I lived in Canada during the during BlackBerry's heyday, and it's easy to forget now in 2021 how massive BlackBerry was in terms of you know the earliest use of a so-called smartphone, right? Yeah. When the iPhone came out, the co-CEO of BlackBerry famously dismissed it as a, oh, sorry. When the, uh, yeah, when the iPhone came out, the co-CEO, Jim Balsilli of BlackBerry, who, by the way, was Malcolm Gladwell's roommate at the University of Toronto in their undergraduate years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, famously dismissed the iPhone as a toy, right? And when you look back, you kind of go like, dude, what were you thinking? Right. Um, when you called it a toy, what did you mean that the users of this device are not serious, that they're not valuable? Um, so if it's a, if it's a device that maybe isn't going to get used by investment bankers and lawyers, it nonetheless could be a rather valuable device that maybe you want to have your version of before you go yeah. from fifty percent market share to whatever they got to in like four years. I think it went from fifty percent market share to two in like I don't know four or five years. Holy, and, you know it 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 goes to this point about Alex about being humble, about paying attention every single day. And to recognizing that what made you successful yesterday and what may be making you successful today may not make you successful tomorrow. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, are, on that point, are there things within your realm of work now that you feel you're obligated to have a pulse on? Like, are there things in the morning that you're you're waking up and reading or checking just to have, you know, <laughs> have the opportunity to read about Blackberry's uh statement and and not miss it <laughs> yeah um yeah it's, it's a few things but you know probably most fundamentally you know where's the american consumer going both uh cyclically and 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 uh, and in secular terms um yeah i think one of the biggest open questions uh for the american economy and American capital management, investment management is frankly, what's your generation going to want to do? How's it going to want to spend its time and its money over the next 10 to 20 years, right? Because yeah. your, your generation, much as mine did in the late 70s, 80s, into the early 90s, we ended up defining, right? What, got, what happened, right? My wife yeah. used to work for a film finance company that had... The, the the great fortune to partner up with Disney at financing the revival of Disney animated films in the late 80s, just as your dad and my generation were having young kids, right? So you know my, da my daughters, Anna and Nellie. Anna was born in 88. Nellie was born in 91, right? So whether it was Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Finding Nemo, Aladdin, uh, the titles go on and on, yeah. right? Um, our baby boom generation, as we had our kids, now known as millennials, like we had so much to do with defining where the culture and the economy went, right? 
Yeah. Um, and now your generation is in that position where it will define where our culture goes. And as our culture goes, our economy will go. Ed, so, have you ever read a book? You ever read a book called The Fourth Turning? I don't. Not only have I not read it, I'm not sure I've heard of it. Okay. It talks very much about kind of generational patterns and how, yeah. you know, the GI generation was kind of this hero generation of World War II and that, uh, you know, crises happen just about every 85 years. And now we have this, um, this crisis of, of COVID and, um, and, and, and quite nicely, they paint the millennials as the hero generation of this, uh, of this, of this time. Um, so that, 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 yeah, that helped me feel good. And also, um, thinking about how our generation is going to react to this crisis, um, it, you know, in just one kind of microcosm um, that you guys have bet on within real estate, you guys have kind of seen, or you guys are making this bet, it sounds to me, based on some of the reading I've done, that my generation is going to still value in-person meeting and gathering and connecting, um, despite the rise of technology and despite our uh, <laughs> you know, adherence to our phones. Um, is that something, how do you feel so optimistic about that? What is, what are the, what are your telltale signs that uh, gathering is still going to be, you know, not just as relevant as it is now, but more relevant in the future as you guys um, acquire these properties. And maybe it's, maybe it's good to tell people what those properties are and why gathering would be necessary at those places. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we we own um, uh, we own about thirty casino gaming assets across America. Our most famous assets are Caesar's Palace, uh, and then we're we'll be closing later this year on the Venetian uh, Palazzo asset, which includes Sands Expo uh, a little farther north on the Strip. And these these are massive assets. I mean, the Venetian, which we're buying, is eight million square feet. Um, and to the terms of what gives me conviction around gathering, I, 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 could, I could cite a few examples, but one of which I'll cite, Alex, is um, how revelatory for me the, the changes have been and how people want to consume iconic sporting events. Mm. If, if you went back to, um, you know, when your dad and I in the 70s were paying a bit of attention to global football, um, if you had said in 1974, when I think the World Cup was in Germany, um, you know, the day is going to come when Americans gather by the thousands to watch global football games in you know, city squares and other big gathering places across America have gone, I know that's not going to happen. Um, and whether it's a Women's World Cup, obviously we didn't get to gather as a nation in uh, 2018 for the last Men's Football World Cup, but the, the, the way in which, whether it's global football, American, not so much American football, but basketball and hockey, whether in the U.S. and Canada, when, when teams go on runs, their fans now want to watch together even when the team is away, right? Mm. Toronto, 
I was uh, in Toronto, and frankly, the whole nation of Canada were a great example of that when the Raptors went all the way to winning the NBA championship a couple of years ago. And, and, and you ask yourself, why did they do that? They got, they've got TVs at home, right? They got phones. They can watch the game anywhere. But the shared experience is simply and fundamentally a richer experience, right? Mm. It's, it's also, I think, why you explain something I frankly still have a hard time understanding, which is why 18,000 people will gather in an arena to watch people play video games. Yeah. And yet they that do. is mental. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's mental, maybe to you and me, but to others, it's like the definition of this is what I want to gather around. Um, yeah. And you talk about technology and, you know, social media, as in so many cases in life, when a term becomes so well worn that you don't really listen to the term or think about its components anymore, think about the term social media, right? The word social has meaning here. And the media, in some cases, is a substitute for the actual gathering. But in other ways, it's a catalyst to the actual gathering. Hmm. Right? It totally, gets, yeah. Gets the word out. And do, in that sense, do you think, uh, do you think online betting will be kind of incorporated in the way you um, foresee these uh, properties growing? Like I, I know the world of online betting has grown immensely and with regulation coming in and kind of changing how we can do that with sports, as you mentioned, um, is that something you're going to try and take and run with in these in-person places where someone could still be gathering socially with people but betting online? Or is it still kind of the old model of betting in person? Um, you know, you go to Vegas and you're you're throwing down literal cash. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be all of the above. I think the most important thing about about sports betting, Alex, is that it um, it enables the American gaming industry to begin to participate in a much more meaningful way, much more expansionary way, in one of two great American conversation topics. There's two great American conversation topics. One of them is the weather. The other is sports, right? <laughs> Think about it. What are the icebreakers, right? Especially with people you maybe you don't know as well or, you know, or people you just run into all the time. But how do you tend to start most conversations? It's either weather or sports. You bet on weather in the commodity markets. Um, but with gaming now able to participate in the, in the sports conversation, it potentially massively expands the audience of people who be in, who become interested in the whole experience of gaming. And what they will discover is that gaming is a part of a much larger social entertainment leisure experience. You know, I, I mentioned we're buying the Venetian. It's 8 million square feet. About 5% of the square feet in this asset are actually gaming space. Yeah. The rest uh, are rooms or? Well, it's rooms. It's 2.3 million of convention trade show space, uh, a massive number of restaurants, a massive number of theaters, including what will, it hasn't opened yet, but the MSG Sphere, which is being developed by Madison Square Garden, which is on a okay. lot at the Venetian, is going to redefine the 21st century um, 
entertainment arena. Uh, it, mm. it won't house sports teams. It's only going to house music, esports, and other non-sporting type experiences. Um, anyway, it's it's you know when Penn, one of our tenants, made their investment in Barstool, they they. Yeah. They obtain proprietary access to the Barstool media platform, which has 66 million people in its audience. Like, yeah. there's, no other, there's no way Penn could have ever talked to 66 million people in America who, who are such strong prospects for, for what Penn can offer them in terms of, a, of an entertainment experience, dining experience, obviously gaming experience, um, club experience. I mean, yeah. you, you the DJs get paid in Vegas, right? Yeah, I'm sure they're there for a reason. <laughs> you you ought to Google how much how much does Calvin Harris get paid? Yeah, it it would stagger you. And why can they afford to pay Calvin Harris so much? It's because these big clubs like Omnia in the building we own, Caesar's Palace, are just they're ATMs, they're money machines. Um, because of the experiences they give and what people are willing to pay uh, for them, uh, I know I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm rambling a bit, but you know it it it's it's a it's a very exciting time in terms of how people are using technology to change the way they get involved in an experience. Yeah, you maybe you've done a little bit of sports betting, but when you literally invest in the game. And maybe you're just doing a side bet. How many yeah. cards are going to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> it it becomes it becomes a livelier experience. Yeah, it's wild. It seems like uh, it seems like such a human thing that for millennia have probably been uh, practiced and enjoyed, you know, through oh, yeah. through our innate innate uh, need to gather. But now we're plugging in these kind of uh, superchargers of <laughs> excitement oh, yeah. with with the advents of technology. You can, you can, I guarantee you that Neanderthals sat there on rocks by the river and said, okay, next animal to come get water, you know, yak, buffalo, yeah. you know, cougar, uh, you know, oryx or whatever. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. betting is pretty well established in the human psyche because, you know, and I think this is an important point goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Risk is energizing. Yeah. Right? It approached the right way. And obviously risk can get dangerously energizing. And there's, we all know people who've, who've gone too far in their pursuit of risk. And I, For I, sure. I look at people today, you know, I, in, 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 you know, skiing, I look at what, I look at what people are doing right now, and it actually is. It's like I thought people like Scott Schmidt and Glenn Plate, and and then and of course the great European extremists of that day, Sylvain Sedan and others, you know, were pushing the edge. But oh my God, what 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 kids are doing today, young men and women, um, you know, time will tell if they're taking it too far. But my, yeah. my point, try to return to the point is that you know risk is energizing and you know if you can create 
experiences for people that involve healthy and not unhealthy amounts of risk. Yeah. You have a business. Is that something you guys have to directly consider? Like the, uh, the kind of safety or um, guidelines in which people are participating in this? You just, yeah, or do you just control them? Because we're just yeah, okay. investment trust. We simply lease the real estate to the operator. The operators yeah. absolutely do. They're very yeah. accountable, very accountable to regulators and frankly, very accountable to themselves to make yeah. sure people don't go too far. Yeah. Wow, that is such a wild, a wild world. I'm excited to see how it progresses. Um, if you have, if you have time, I have a few more bullet points. Are you game yeah. to? Okay, this has been a blast. I'm, I, I'm really excited that uh, we got to do this. Um, okay, zooming, zooming, um, you know, out of kind of your specific work with Vici and looking more at your, your personal um, journey here. I, I'm curious about how you see the the consequences and the rewards of, of kind of a, an ambitious career, an ambitious career path. I think, um, you know, to me, um, immediately the rewards are, are obvious as far as, um, you know, what you can do for your family, how you can choose to live based on various sacrifices you made at work. Um, it, the, the downfalls are less obvious, I think, but maybe once you've experienced them, um, <laughs> become all too, all too obvious. Um, but, but could you talk a bit about kind of your, how your ambition progressed and then the, the pros and cons of, of pursuing a, a career with ambition? Yeah, it's, it, I think so much is dependent upon, you know, the answer to the question, what, what are you ambitious for? Right. And how, how, how narrow is the scope of your ambition versus how broad is the scope of your ambition? In other words, if, if you expressed your ambition as, as narrowly as to say, you know, by the time I'm 50, uh, I'm going to be CEO of Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. Man, that's, that's real narrow, man. Right. You know, when you, when you express your ambition too narrowly, um, or I shouldn't say too narrowly. When you express your ambition really narrowly, um, you are you are I suppose benefiting in a way from prescribing a very narrow path. There's only so many paths to becoming the CEO of Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or, or whatever company, Disney, whatever company you want, ES, ESPN. Um, right. This is part of Disney, but anyway. Um, <laughs> So, you know, when, when you make your ambition really narrow, your path by definition is probably going to be pretty narrow. That's a good yep. news. That's a bad news, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, you're going to feel you succeeded or failed based upon having achieved a very, very narrow set of outcomes. Well, in fact, narrow to the point of there's only one outcome. You either did or you didn't, right? Yeah. Um, my approach you know, again, the, you know, as a practitioner, the WTF career path um, <laughs> is I never really had, I never really had a narrow scope of ambition. I never had an ambition mm. to become a public company CEO. I'm doing it for mm. the first time, but it was never part of my, of my, my ambition. And, and I think it goes again, back to those, those of us who tend to, um, 
to live less by a preordained path and more by um, constantly looking around and seeing what's adjacent, right? Mm. So my path makes no sense if thought of as a series of discrete steps. It's like, no, no way, dude. You don't go from being editor of Ski Magazine in 1996 to being CEO of a REIT with, you know, nearly a $20 billion market cap, you know, within almost 20 years. That, that, no, you, that, that, like, stop. You're on acid. Um, yeah. We think of this as straight steps. It'll never make sense. It'll never be explainable. Yeah. But if you think about, well, okay, I'm the editor of Ski Magazine. I'm kind of fascinated about, you know, um, about where we are as a sport and why are we experiencing as a sport what we're experiencing today versus say what we experienced eight years ago. I bring this specific example up, Alex, because it explains a lot of how things unfolded. So in 1994, I'm the editor of Ski Magazine. And thanks to the work I'd done on the sales side, I was really interested in skiing as, as a population of practitioners, but also as a marketplace. And one thing that I was wrestling with was, why are we as a sport not as strong here in 1994 as we were in 1986? And so to come up with an explanation, I started doing some work around demographics. And I simply laid out how many people were a given year of age in, uh, in 1986 versus 1984. And not to get too, too into the weeds on this, the greatest number of baby boomers, the greatest number of people in your dad and my generation were born in 1960. So in 1986, the greatest number of Americans were 26 years old. And that's not too far off where you are today. And people who are 26 years old have a lot of time and are starting to get just enough income to go skiing and skiing a lot. Mm. Mm. In 1994, obviously those people were all eight years older. And a lot of them at the age of 34 were having kids. And guess what? The kids weren't old enough to come skiing yet. So my ambition was to tell the ski industry why we are where we are today. And I, I know there were a lot of people in the audience at the ski resort convention going, Ed Petoniak, he has absolutely no business telling us why we are where we are as an industry right now. <laughs> and they, they were probably right. But there was one guy in that audience who, you know, founded Black Home and then started putting it into a ski portfolio who listened to this and went, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of it this way. And that guy was Hugh Smythe, still to this day, one of the most important people I ever worked for, had the privilege of working for, who eventually said, I want you to come work for me. We got to figure this out. Because what I was saying to Hugh and what I've been saying to that audience that day is we've been a bit slow as an industry the last eight, well, not that so much the last eight years, but we've been slowing over the last eight years because all the core of our market is having kids and the kids aren't old enough to come skiing yet. But here's the good news. They're going to be ready soon. We are not ready as an industry. Kids ski school sucks. Our whole approach to snowboarding here in 1994 is totally uh, stupid, right? Mm. 
Um, and we as an industry need to be ready in terms of kids ski school and snowboarding programs and, and a family experience if we're going to capitalize on the desire to come back to skiing now that the kids are old enough. That's why I got hired by Interwest. And then once I got hired by Interwest, almost everything else became possible because we were in so many damn businesses that mm. it gave me preparation to go into so many different damn businesses. That sounds, um, that kind of sounds like the ambition was never kind of a means to some end that you had in sight, but it was kind of a, you were ambitious out of your own curiosity and following that curiosity and, and, and uh, doubling down on those interests uh, paid off in this case where, where someone saw the same, the same piece of uh, information interesting as you did. So that's, yeah. I think that's really, that's neat. That, that That's the way it panned out. And, and that's, I think one thing that you and I, shared still share today is um is just is curiosity i I, curiosity um is risk is energizing and curiosity is energizing and and you know opportunity frankly is born of curiosity that's quite that's a great quote that might be the uh, tagline here of this conversation (laughs) um okay broadly how do you see the next 20 years um panning out we've had quite the past 20 years, if you think of 9-11, the 07-08 crash, um, this kind of rise of populism and, and kind of conflict in, in the U.S. with race relations and social unrest. Um, are, we, are we nearing an end? Are we coming together or splitting apart? How do you kind of look at the, the long-term trajectory of our next 20 years, especially as millennials come into their uh, you know, working phase of their lives? Yeah, I, um, well, God, let's hope. Let's hope we're through this period of biblical plagues, um, you know, pestilence, storms, hurricanes, infestations, you know, financial crises. Um, and, and time will tell whether we are or we aren't. Um, I am optimistic by nature. Um, I, I do think, again, to go back to what we spoke about earlier, Alex, I, I think your generation will end up defining to such a great degree, you know, the nature of life here in America and around the world over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and I think one of, one of the big unanswered questions is the degree to which we, you know, we use the tools of, of, of technology to unify us or divide us, right? Um, and the degree to which we use the tools of technology uh, and all the other resources available to us to understand each other better or to simply, you know, work relentlessly on our own self-images. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I honestly think the selfie is, is just, you know, I don't know. It's like something bad out of the Bible. I don't know if it's like, (laughs) but man, oh man, um, it, it, that the the degree to which we become more and more self-centered, I would say next 10, 20 years, holy Christ, help us all. Um, but I, but I'm optimistic. I don't think that will be the case. Um, mm. 
And, and I think what, the media, what, what national media misses almost all the time is the degree to which the way in which people live their lives day to day is so intensely local, mm. right? And yep. I think, if I had any advice for anybody, it's don't consume too much national media, because right? mm. it's where abstraction and generality dominates. And if you live your life in relation to generalities, you're not gonna live a very rich life, right? Mm. Yeah. Just live a life as specific to who you are and where you are as you can. And you will, you'll make your community a better place to live. You know, uh, you know, I think it was one of the transcendentalists uh, back in the, uh, the 19th century said something like, and I really should have, I should Google this someday to make sure I actually am representing it correctly. One of the transcendentalists said, well, if you want to understand the world, given that most of the transcendentalists lived in greater Boston, you might as well start by just understanding Cambridge, right? <laughs> um, and you, you can say the same thing wherever you may live, right? Colorado, Montana. Yeah. Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, wherever it is, like live a life highly specific to where you are. And, and what's really encouraging is that so many people are doing that. So many people are doing that. This, if you live your life at the level of national media, you can despair pretty quickly and go, oh man, we're bleak. Um, yeah. But, you know, you travel around to the number of communities where genuinely good things are happening. And they may be happening amidst other things that are kind of dire that need to be dealt with, whether it be opioid crises or a lack of, of work that's truly fulfilling. But there's a lot of good stuff happening. And, you know, I, I do think we've been through a really dark period. And yeah. I think that with the changes we've seen, especially over the last couple of months, the degree to which everybody kind of calms down and, you know, leaves behind that, frankly, the hysteria of, of the last four years and, and puts down the crack pipe that, yeah. frankly, you know, the last four years represented, you know, we'll be all better off. Totally. Yeah. That makes me kind of think of uh, our misinterpretation and, and lack of uh, kind of intuition for statistics as we listen to national media and be, you know, apply those to our daily lives where, you know, you're now literally interpreting 20% as, you know, two out of 10 interactions with people you might, you know, you're playing roulette in every situation. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's a great, a great piece of advice. And that's something that I think we could all focus on in our, in our own communities. And, and if we all did, oh, it, maybe, uh, maybe it would compound in a, in a great way. It would, it would be good. It would be good. Um, okay. I got a quick speed round for you. Uh, these are kind of sure. just quick couple words, a um, couple questions that, uh, that you can respond to, um, whatever comes to top of mind. Um, in the current environment, how are you thinking about um, inflation and potential issues there? And the uh, connected to that, maybe the U.S. debt. Uh, <laughs> as a whole, they can be very brief in general, but touching on that. 
Yeah, well, there's no doubt because of the year-over-year comparisons, we're going to go through a period where where nominally inflation is going to look really high, and it and it will be high versus where we were a year ago when we were truly in what, the worst state of economic depression since the 30s. Um, in terms of where it levels out, I think it's probably going to be okay um, for reasons good and positive, and reasons that have their darker consequences, which is, you know. There's a worldwide supply of, of, of labor and a worldwide supply of materials, and nobody has pricing power in any one nation at this point to the degree where they could just take inflation to the skies because somebody else will come in and supply it cheaper. And in terms of the national debt, you know, it's I, I do think it's manageable. We don't want it to become unmanageable, um, but I think that. What we're learning is that this economy has a lot more capacity than people thought it did and that we can run much higher employment than we did. And if we do and truly give people the work that they deserve to have and the wages they deserve to have, we're going to have a lot of revenue to manage our debt. Mm. How are you thinking about um, this whole decentralized decentralized finance um, uh, um, erupting world with cryptocurrencies? Have you read on that or do you have any intuitions on on the world of decentralized finance? I, I, gosh, it's something that my curiosity should be leading me to understand better. Um, yeah, I will say I get to a point in life where I'm kind of going, okay, am I ever really going to understand that? Um, <laughs> in the years I have made. <laughs> You've wrapped your head around the selfie. So I think you're in, you're in, you're in good lockstep to, yeah, I think, to start. Um, I, I honestly, I, I don't have an informed view on that. What I do, what I do think is, is, is a necessary rite of passage is what we saw this, you know, earlier this year with the whole, you know, meme stock uh, phenomenon, you know, yeah. um, it's not a bad thing if more people learn that investing is a great way, you know, to, to build value in their lives, both financial value, but also optionality, right? Yeah. Um, if you can manage your, your economic affairs well, you simply will have more options in life in terms of what you want to do, where you want to live, uh, and so forth. And so if people can learn to invest smartly, you know, and make some mistakes along the way, because everybody does, that's not a bad thing. We'll definitely see how how crypto uh, how smart it looks in the years to come. <laughs> yeah. Um, what book would you recommend everyone read? Oh gosh. Um, As the English major himself. Yeah. Well, I did. I did just read a book, and I and I'm a little hesitant to to recommend it because it is so damn fat, and it took me so long to get through. But I did, I did just finish a book a little while back called The Wise Men. Um, mm. And it is a book about, and then, you know, tellingly of the times, they were all men. Um, this wouldn't be the case today, given the leaders we have in America. Uh, but this, this was a group of men who were born late 1800s, early 1900s, and who, who defined America's relationship to the world starting in the 30s and up through really the 70s and even into the 80s. Uh, names mm -hmm. like 
Averill Harriman, um, John Foster Dulles, and others. And it's worth reading um, because it restores confidence that when America has its act together, it can be a responsible uh, member of the international community. And it's not that we did not commit a lot of sins in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. God knows we did. But we had an approach to international affairs that we so badly went away from, especially in the last four years. Um, and it, 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 it's a great way of restoring faith that when we as a country understand that we do not live, cannot live successfully solely unto ourselves, um, that we can be a, a genuine force for good in the world. Again, not that we won't make our mistakes, we will. And not that we won't do bad stuff, we will. But to the extent you can generalize, we're going to do more good than bad. That sounds great. I'll have to check that out. Um, what is the best city you've ever visited in your travels? Oh, man. Um, I'd have to say... Wow. Amsterdam's pretty damn magical. Um, <laughs> That'd be the second Amsterdam I've gotten. Yeah, <laughs> Amsterdam would be right up there. Um, uh, but I, uh, I'd probably have to say Paris. Um, just because what Paris represents for me is the concept of uh, what I would call civic wealth in that, you know, going back centuries now, going back to the, the earliest establishment of the Louvre as an example, um, the French believed in creating wealth available to the civitas, the population, mm -hmm. right? Um, and when you go to Paris, there are so many buildings open to the public in one way or another where you get to experience the cultural wealth of France, the cultural and historical wealth of France. In our country, you can do that in DC. You can do it to a degree in some cities, but historically, but especially over the last 50, 60 years, um, wealth in America has been truly private and almost solely private, right? Yeah. You know, we used to, this is probably a longer answer than you want, Alex, but... No, this is great. We used to call one manifestation of, of civic wealth, we used to call it public works, right? Hmm. And, you know, when you travel around New England um, and, and, and other places in the country, you can come upon these, these reservoirs and watersheds that were built in the 1800s, early 1900s. And everything about these reservoirs was built to last, right? Mm. The gate houses, the valve houses, um, you know, were built beautifully, strongly, and built to last. Um, and there was a sense of civic pride that we're creating civic wealth that generations and generations will benefit from. 
And then somewhere along the line, we stopped calling public works public works, and we started calling it infrastructure, which is <laughs> another case of, of creating a new term that totally depersonalizes um, and totally obscures accountability as to who owns it. I've totally thought that recently with talks of with talks of infrastructure. I've thought that same thing. Like, what the hell is infrastructure? It's so depersonalized. There's no yeah. concrete understanding of what that is. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so true. Public works may not have been a perfect term, but it was a hell of a lot better term than infrastructure. Yeah. Um, okay. Who is someone you look up to and why? Oh, gosh, there are so many people. Um, I, I mean, I, mean I, I look up tremendously to my wife. I look up to my daughters. Um, I, I, I genuinely look up to your dad. Um, he's always been, I think, a person who has lived a life of grace um, that uh, I am so envious of. Um, and you can tell him I said that. Uh, <laughs> I promise that wasn't a shameless plug. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a great, great term. I don't, frankly don't know if it's a Latin or Italian term. I think it's an Italian term. Sprezzatura. Um, and you and your listeners can all look that up as to what it means. Um, but it, I, I, I've always looked up most to the people who... Who, who give evidence, radiant evidence, that they are at home in the world. Hmm. Uh, and um, are experiencing the world minute by minute um, by being present in the world minute by minute. Hmm. I'll just tell you one other guy. I mentioned him already, Hugh Smythe, um, a guy I worked for for eight years at Interwest who who built Black Home with his bare hands, built the Interwest Ski Resort portfolio, um, and who who brought a, a creativity to creating experiences unlike almost anybody I've ever had the privilege of working uh, for, and um, and who brought a sense of urgency to it, unlike anybody else I've ever worked for before. Um, hmm. I need to be up there as well. Hmm. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I would go back to the great John Wooden, who was the immortal coach of the UCLA, UCLA basketball teams. They won, I don't know how many championships they won in a row. And one of his mantras was, be quick, but don't hurry. Mm. That's awesome. <laughs> That's perfect for sports and life. I love that. Yeah. Um, what would you consider your biggest achievement in life this far? Uh, I know it sounds like a cliche, but family. Um, mm. What Kate and I have been able to do together um, in in creating uh, life uh, for uh, our daughters and watching our daughters become the incredible young women they are is it just it makes everything else seem so pale by comparison. 
that one I'm gonna have to uh, adjust for anyone with kids. It's getting it's uh, that seems to be tried and true through through all yeah. these talks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so okay, and so if you if you, if you said okay, if that that you can answer that over here, but you got to give me an answer outside of that. Um, I think the um, is. Uh, stop by stop along the way, creating experiences for the people I've worked with that were truly collaborative, collegial, and experiences that people really enjoyed, um, mm. as opposed to just a regular old routine depersonalized work experience right yeah um, totally you know the extent to which you you know certainly as a team leader the extent to which you can give people a chance to for work to be fun and for the people you work with to truly become friends man that makes life a lot more fun to live given mm -hmm many hours a day and days a year we work yep all right well in this kind of uh this vein of of self-improvement and continuous learning is there anyone that comes to mind on the next uh the next docket i think i would definitely love to reach out to to drew and talk to him about education and the future of of education um is there anyone that comes to mind in this vein uh yeah you should definitely talk to drew i i yeah, you're absolutely spot on. He would be great to talk to. Um, in terms of others, you can and should talk to. Um, let me think. Um, you can think on it as well if someone comes to mind later. Yeah, yeah, I will. Um, Maybe we'll have to get Anna on yeah, and talk yeah. some of her books. You know who who might be. Good to talk to to the extent you ever want to ever want to have a podcast where you're talking to somebody who's taken like one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is there's people who know how to ski and there's people who know how to be a skier huh right expand and, on that a bit what do you mean by that well, there's there's a lot of people who become very, very technically proficient skiers, but for whom the whole experience of skiing is kind of mechanical. Right? I see, yeah. Racer, yeah. Racers are obviously a great example of that. There's a lot of racers who really don't enjoy skiing very much. Yeah. Right? Because it's all done within such an uh, environment of relentless pressure and danger, frankly, of busting your body up. It's just like, yep. you know... It's kind of like the relationship John McEnroe and Andre Agassi had to tennis. Mm. It's like, I actually hate this, right? Yeah. Um, that's kind of an extreme example. Um, but in the case of, um, you know, the difference between being a skier and, and, and knowing how to ski is that the whole experience of being a skier is so much richer when you approach skiing holistically. So it's like, I really, I really want to understand weather. I really want to understand 
mountain topography and geography. I really want to understand snow and its character. Um, I really want to understand light and its impact on snow. Um, you know, I, I really, I want to approach my skiing so that my experience of the, because what skiing essentially is, is experiencing the forces of nature. And so I yeah. want to experience the forces in a way that's really rich. So the, the most thoughtful guy, well, it was really two super thoughtful guys. Unfortunately, one of them, Stu Campbell, uh, died a number of years ago because of cancer. But hmm. um, one other person I put in that category is uh, a guy named Peter Shelton, who uh, hmm. was my best writer at Ski Magazine. He lives out in Bend today, still does some writing, did a series of essays uh, that were really columns that he had produced when he, he used to live in uh, Montrose. Um, oh, yeah. No, actually, he didn't live in Montrose. He lived in... He lived in either Ridgeway or Ure. I think he lived in Ridgeway. Hmm. Uh, but he, for whatever newspapers in that Telluride area, he wrote a bunch of columns. Um, yeah. He, he's just so articulate about what it means to be a skier. Hmm. That'd be awesome to do a deep dive. Part of my, one of my dreams of this is to kind of split it up into seasons, you know, do 10 episodes on outdoors and outdoor enthusiasts, 10 episodes on economics yeah. on education on leadership um yeah that sounds i think i think those people that you know in your life where it's just when someone comes to mind you're like ah oh, that freaking guy just knows how to put put words to feelings like none else um yeah, those yeah. are definitely the characters yeah. i'm after yeah peter's definitely in that category um you know another That's guy cool. another guy um i don't know I don't know. He he may get calls from podcast people every week, um, uh, but it's a legendary guy named Dick Dorworth. I don't know if you know that name. I do from kind of some uh, some movie with Yvonne Chouinard mentioned some Dick Dorworth. Uh, was he kind of in that crowd in that time? Yeah. So Dick is Dick is kind of a WTF kind of guy in terms of everything he's packed into his life. Um, he was he was part of, he was at least on the fringe of that whole Yosemite Valley climbing scene in the um, yep. 50s. Um, but at one point too, he was, he was the fastest skier on earth because he was, he was at the, he was kind of in the forefront of the whole speed skiing movement that got kind of going in the 60s and into the 70s. I think he might have been first. I can't remember. He was the first to break a certain barrier as mm. a speed skier. Um, at some point, I think he was a U.S. ski team coach somehow, which I really don't understand because his resistance to authority of any kind is pretty much total. <laughs> um, he, became, he became a ski writer. Um, and very, very early on, he became a practicing Buddhist. Uh, he uh, he married a lot of women, or actually, I'm not sure how many married. Fathered a lot of children, including arguably one of the best ski photographers of the last 30, 40 years, Scott Markowitz. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, Dick is Scott's father. I I think 
Scott's mother had enough of Dick's shenanigans, so gave Scott the last name, either her last name or maybe stepfather's last name. I'm not sure. Um, wow. But uh, Dick lives in Bozeman. Um, and I saw him a couple of years ago at a, a birthday party for a mutual friend in Sun Valley. He's, I think he's mm. two. Um, mm. If you Google him, uh, Tricycle Magazine did a really great profile of him. Um, a few yeah. Years I'll definitely check that out. A round table with him and Casey for it would be a, a an epic an epic yeah. round two with Casey. <laughs> yeah. Um well awesome. You've been so generous with your time that I, I really My appreciate pleasure. it. Um this was an absolute blast. The last thing that just just mentioned when you mentioned he studied Buddhism, do you do you practice any uh any form of meditation or any type of um uh any any adherence to any practices like that? No, not really. Um yeah. I my mind is really lively um, yeah. and I enjoy it. Um, so whenever anybody says, you know, you should learn how to quiet your mind, I kind of go, why would I want to do that? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, that's maybe, uh, that's maybe Buddhist in its, in its interpretation. <laughs> yeah, that's I awesome. Know. I don't know. Anyway, someday. I well, good deal. But, yeah yeah exactly yeah well thanks ed i really appreciate it this was a blast sure well that concludes part two of my interview with ed petoniak how awesome is ed i really enjoyed that conversation and i hope you guys did as well hoping to get canyon woodward on the podcast coming up here and hopefully drew castertano as well as we mentioned in this interview with Ed. So until then, take care and tune in next time. Got some information I know you wanna have. I'm going out. Out without a sound. Get your shit together, my mama used to say Well, I light up another bowl and numb myself away I'm 